chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first four verses of this chapter this morning. Well, it's becoming increasingly apparent to Americans that we are possibly on the brink of another civil war, enduring a a year of violence and riots tends to make people pessimistic, understandably so, and both liberals and conservatives are recognizing the signs. Most Americans, not shockingly, don't trust the government or the media, and most polls are revealing that a growing percentage of people are even stockpiling for an inevitable war. One article I read this week suggested that three, there are three factors that lead to civil wars, and all of them are present in our nation. The first is there's previous conflict of some kind, whether it be an actual war or some kind of growing tension political, political conflict. So check one. Uh, secondly, deepening cleavage of national identities. That's separation or division according to uh, predominant um, categories like race, faith, class. Uh, check two. Third one would be that tribalism or doubts of those who are not in your group, doubts of the opinions of those groups or the beliefs of those groups, tribalism begins to turn into a sectarianism, which is defined as believing that the other groups are evil. Check three. So I wish I I had good news for you regarding the, the state of our nation, but according to the polls, none of you would believe me anyways if I told you that. Um, So settling for that political tension and polarization in the U.S., it might be inevitable, but that should never be the case for the church. We cannot allow our national pessimism to bleed into our pessimism regarding church conflicts. And unfortunately, that does tend to happen. Uh, In this morning's passage, Paul continues developing the themes of unity that began back in verse 27, uh, which we looked at last week, and it will finish at chapter 2, verse 18. So we'll be looking at this theme several more weeks. But having warned his readers previously about the need to stand firm in the face of a hostile culture, he transitions now in this section for the need to pursue unity among one another. That's right, he, he's focused on unity, but it's unity for the sake of facing a hostile culture in the previous passage. This week, it's, facing, or, or it's pursuing unity internally, right? And, and it's, it's how we do that. And he'll, he'll continue to exemplify that in the next section, too. But unity not only strengthens believers to withstand attacks from those outside the church, but it also heals conflict among those inside the church. And the assumption here is that you will have it. The assumption here is that there is going to be conflict, externally and internally. It's what you do about it that matters. And so the harsh reality is that even in a community that's experiencing gospel blessings, as the very first verse we'll point out here, there still resides a prideful tendency to divide. And so the fullness of joy 
if I could summarize this passage, it'd be this, that the fullness of joy is realized where edified saints are unified in humble service. And so we'll explain that as we work our way through the passage. But before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this time to read and study this letter that was sent to a particular church, to particular believers who were struggling with similar situations that we face today. Lord, with a hostile culture and a a tendency to experience division within Lord, we see that same thing carrying out, playing itself out in every generation of the church since. And so this passage, Lord, has an important lesson for us to learn, and we ask that you would soften our hearts to receive that lesson, to understand it with our minds, and then to apply it in our lives. Lord, we want to honor you ultimately that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear this truth this morning. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Amen. This is God's holy word. So, If you're following along in your outline, our first point is the joy of gospel sympathy, found in verse 1 here. And he gives really four clauses that reflect upon a theme of comfort, consolation, um, sympathy. He's, He's specifically referring to these qualities or these characteristics that are that we experience through the grace of Christ. Right, through the work of his spirit. It's through the comfort and sympathy of our God. So the motivation for unity is the encouragement, comfort, fellowship, affection, and sympathy that we receive from Christ and the Spirit. And we have um, the list right emphasizes God's purpose in redemption and its effect upon believers. So it's our experience of that encouragement and of comfort and fellowship that is granted to us by Christ and the Spirit. And it may even imply the work of the Father in his love toward us, which you could look at many cross-references that refer to the Father's love, as in John 3.16. But all of these blessings, they reveal God's care for our greatest spiritual and emotional burdens. It's him coming over us and, and caring for us, providing for us that protection that we long for and that we need, the comfort that we are seeking. And so Paul's direct reference there to the blessings that flow from Christ and the Spirit, they indicate that these are the fruit of the gospel. Right? He's not questioning if these qualities exist among the Philippians. He's not asking them to consider, like, uh, do you or don't you have these experiences? It's, it's almost as if he's saying, since you have experienced encouragement in Christ, 
since you have received comfort, let it be true also that you're united. Right? There's a, there's a, um, a call-response sort of relationship here. Because of what God has done in you, let it be true that you would seek this unity among one another. So um, your union with Christ then is exemplified through your experience of his sympathy. And because you have been the beneficiary of such support, you are called to then bear the marks of that reality. If he's been sympathetic to you, you're to be sympathetic toward others. And so before Paul exhorts his readers with that exhortation, right, before he encourages them and tells them to seek that same mind, this is what he reminds them of, this reflection upon their union with Christ. Right, before he addresses the tension and division, and he doesn't, he doesn't um, you know, it's, it's an implied thing in this passage, right? He's telling them, have the same mind. Be of one accord in the next verse. It's implied then that, they, that there's tension there, that there's something that would require that sort of exhortation. But in order to address that, he begins with, the, with calling them to reflect upon the rich blessings that they've already received from God. And so it's an important principle for us to learn, right? Unity among fellow saints begins with gratitude for the work that God has begun. This is really consistent with the theme. That's why this is the joy, right, of the gospel. Because it, it, it is something that he's continuing to, to circle back around to. It's, it's a joyful thing. He's talking about the sympathy that we've received from him, and it's the joyful blessings and benefits that result from that sympathy. All right, so we ought to enjoy routine reflection upon our covenant blessings. Remind yourself often of the benefits that you have received as a child of God. Now, beyond the future inheritance that he has promised, right, God has enriched your life in the present as well. And so reflect upon the sympathy that you've received from your loving Lord. This is your opportunity to thank God for providing you a community in which you experience that support and encouragement every week. Now, hopefully that's why you're coming. That's why you're here is because you know your need for that encouragement. Right? Our loving fellowship is a reflection of God's sovereign care of us. And as Paul makes clear in the next verse, all of these benefits then contribute to the fullness of our joy, which is why he's saying complete my joy. It's not as if these things have nothing to do with joy. Right? He's saying, now complete my joy by also being united. So most TVs have a, a number of different inputs. Right? They, you, you need to, a spot to plug in your cable and satellite antenna, your Roku and Apple TV box, your Nintendo Switch, PS5, Xbox gaming console, etc., etc. You, you guys know more than I do probably about the things you can plug into a TV. Many homes then have this massive outlet strip in order to accommodate all of the electronic devices that have to be plugged in. And then you have to find a plant or a piece of furniture to cover up the hideous number of cords that are all tangled up, making a mess right, that you don't want anyone to see. Well, here's the thing. We fill our minds with so much distraction that we have forgotten how to rest 
in the enjoyment of prayerful reflection. This is what Paul is calling us to here. Take the time to reflect upon the encouragement that you've received in Christ, the comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. That language, again, participation could be translated fellowship or partnership, the same word he's been using throughout chapter 1. That partnership or fellowship that we have in the Spirit the affection and sympathy, all of these things coming to us from God and then having an impact upon us. So this is precisely what Paul's reminding the Philippian church to do, to reflect upon those benefits of our union with Christ because it precedes exhortation for union with one another. In fact, it's what motivates that union. And so all too often we jump to the imperatives of Scripture, right? Just be united without recognizing the need to appreciate the indicatives of who you are in Christ. That motivates you then to carry out that command. And so in the sympathy of Christ, Octavius Winslow refers to teachers who who think that Jesus was merely a historical being or a sentimental, uh, ideal figure. And so he says, first of all, it's true. Jesus is an important, he was an important historical figure who provided an example of human perfection. But he goes on to say, our nature craves more than this. We need fellowship, not with a sentiment, not with a tradition, nor with an idea, but with a real, living, personal being. We seek communion with and sympathy from a Savior in alliance with our veritable nature, endowed with a real, deep, holy sensibility, disciplined by personal sorrow like our own and moved with a quick response to every note of the still sad music of humanity. It's a a wonderful devotional reflection, uh, Octavius Winslow, in in the sympathy of Christ that that will stir up in you an appreciation for the benefits and blessings you have received from Christ. And then from that, our grateful response to the commands of God follows, right? It follows the gracious redemption that was accomplished by Christ. And so one significant aspect of our response is then the joy of gospel unity. It is is to pursue unity. We see this in verse 2. Complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So this exhortation to complete Paul's joy by unifying their thoughts and affections is the result of the fellowship that they have enjoyed in the Spirit. Back at verse 1. So this is the natural progression, right? It's the effects of the gospel, but it's not something that, uh, that occurs effortlessly. Make my joy complete. If unity fulfills Paul's joy, then division would have robbed it. Think about that just very practically for a moment here. We should ask ourselves if our actions increase or decrease the joy of those who care for us spiritually. So children, do you think about the joy your actions might bring to your parents? 
members of the church? Do you think about the joy your actions might bring to your spiritual oversight? And we could also turn it around upon those in positions of oversight, those in positions of authority. Do the actions of those in your care bring you joy? When they do something that honors and pleases the Lord, does it fill you with joy? When your children are obedient, are you affirming to them? Are you encouraging them in that way? So are you actively affirming the good in your children or in the flock as Paul has done throughout this letter? And he's given us an example of a loving and kind spiritual leader. And so even though the Philippians had enjoyed such rich covenant blessings as were explained in verse 1, they still struggled with pride and division. Paul's exhortation implies the tension that was present. And so at this point in the letter, we don't know, right? We can only speculate the extent of that tension, but it was enough for Paul to address it. It was enough for it to become a theme and probably the, the primary theme of this letter. His solution was to exhort believers to seek spiritual, emotional, and intellectual unity. And notice he's talking about having the same, same affections, the same desires, as well as the same mind. Their thoughts are supposed to be in sync. Their affections, that means their drive, their goals are the same. And of course, that doctrinal and spiritual unity. So this is common in Scripture, which, which means that it's a frequent problem for the covenant community. It, Paul says the same thing to the church in Rome. He says the same thing to the Ephesians. On the other hand, there is the potential to think that we can achieve unity simply by placing all of our energy toward that goal. Right? Unity for the sake of unity is not the goal. Right, this past year proved that people can unify for destructive purposes. Right, several communities have formed around hatred and anarchy. So just being united, just being like-minded is not the, the goal. We want to enjoy a unity in Christian doctrine and mission. A unity in Christ. And so in order for that to occur, our affections must be guided in the same direction. Our pursuit of Christ transforms our minds, resulting in union with him and one another. And so that in increases the sympathy that we experience from Christ. It is this endless cycle where our minds are being transformed and, and, and that we are continuing to receive that sympathy and that blessing from Christ that then fuels our unity among one another. And so think about this. This is something you can pursue this morning. You don't have to wait for unity to magically appear. You can do something about it now. And I think, you know, for a moment, I, I, I am encouraged by the example of our church in this regard. We love to talk. <laughs> we talk all the way up until I finally have to just cut it off, right, before the service. Um, our service begins at 10. We have Sunday school at 9. Many are present from 9 o'clock all the way until I'm, I'm rarely locking these doors before 1 p.m. 
And so if anyone wants community, you can find it here. Right? Praise God that we have our own place. Right? We can enjoy extended times of fellowship. Some of you don't realize uh, what this looked like in our previous situation. Right? We, uh, we, we shared a building with another church, and they were gracious and, and kind hosts. Um, but they held their worship service shortly after ours, and so we would wrap up our service, and then we'd have about 15 minutes while they're setting up, and we're, we're crammed into a room that's smaller than this, um, and trying to enjoy some snacks and, and coffee and telling kids to stop running because they can't really go anywhere else without interfering with the other service or going out aside into the street, and we didn't want to allow that. So, right, we, we, we would have, within 20 minutes of the service ending, we're, we're already the shush police, you know, telling everyone to be quiet. And so it generally ended pretty quickly, the fellowship. And so if you think maybe this, maybe we're really passionate about sticking around and talking, well, just understand where it's coming from, right? We've had it bottled up for so long that it's just this fire hose-like release of pressure finally, right? We'd stay here all day if we could. And I'm not pointing the finger at anyone who, who has to leave immediately after the service. In some cases, obviously, that happens. But I, I'm going to begin monitoring the back exit and just keeping track of who leaves. Um, <laughs> But that has nothing to do with this. No, I realize, obviously, not everyone can stay. And I, right, there's, there's other benefits that, you know, that, that we could provide, like an extra bathroom stall. But all of you realize, right, that unity and connection takes time to develop. It doesn't just happen effortlessly. Well, maybe... Right, coming to the worship service is, is itself a challenge. I want to say that's central. Being here to worship is central. And I never want to downplay its importance. But staying for fellowship is critical for unity. So stick around and enjoy the potluck lunch right, afterwards, whether you brought something or not. Maybe you're thinking, well, why does unity really matter? I mean, can't we just enjoy our Christian blessings, which, you know, while at the same time acknowledge that we have a sinful tendency toward division? Right? Should we simply throw our hands up and say there's nothing we can really do about it? You just have to live with the tension. Right? Expect it. We're all sinners, and so it's going to happen. Well, maybe acknowledging the inevitability of the tension will help us to live with it. No, the problem is Scripture doesn't allow for that approach. Right? When Jesus was preparing to depart from his disciples, he prayed in Gethsemane that they would be one, even as we are one. Praying to the Father through the Spirit, he's saying, let these people, let my disciples be one, even as we are one. And then he goes on to pray for us for future followers of Christ, future disciples. In verses 20 and 21, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So through the word of the New Testament, those who believe in Christ because of their words, may they also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice the purpose there, that the unity is so that those outside may believe that the Father sent the Son. So according to Christ's high priestly prayer here in John 17, one element of effective evangelism is witnessing the unity of the church. And if that's what Christ prayed for us, then it ought to be an important aspect of our purpose and our aim. Any unity we experience in doctrine and mission springs from the work of God in our midst that we reflected on in verse 1. And there's another thing here in verse, verses 3 and 4, right? In order for there to be unity, there must also be gospel humility. When Augustine was asked what the three greatest virtues were, he responded, humility, humility, humility. Scripture speaks of pride and humility frequently. And so it's obviously a lesson that we need to hear over and over again. I read this book a, a while back, but it, it's, uh, it's by C.J. Mahaney called Humility. And it tells a story about, or he tells a story about the effect of, of pride in his life. He's talking about his daughter having car troubles. And so he went outside and he tried to start the car and it made this loud shrieking sound. And so C.J., who didn't even know how to put air in his tires, decided to lift up the hood and he checked the windshield wiper fluid, right? It was half full, should be good. Closed the hood, went back to try to restart the car. Still didn't work, right? I mean, there's this, this pride that, you know, that, that, feel, that makes us to, to do really weird things, right? We must humble ourselves, recognize our lack of understanding, seek to grow and mature. And here's the thing, we have to value the paradox that the way up is down. This is what we find here in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only uh, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Interestingly, the, the word interest there is supplied. It's not in the text. Right, so let each of you look not only to his own, but also to others. Really, what, what he's saying there is, let others be of surpassing value than yourself. Consider them better than you. Now, as we decrease, others increase in our estimation. And so we are to fight pride by considering others as surpassing ourselves. And Paul isn't referring to humility before those who are superior to you. Right? Acknowledge the people who are better than you and just humble yourself before them. No, he says we should count others more significant regardless of whether they are or not. It's a different kind of challenge. It's not our job to evaluate whether someone is worthy to receive our humility. 
Right? Comparing ourselves to others leads to thinking either too much of ourselves or too little of ourselves. Humility is primarily about getting ourselves out of the way of the work of Christ. And so we should agree with John the Baptist who said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And when Jesus recognized that his hour of departure had come, he showed his love for his disciples by washing their feet. John 13, it's a remarkable picture. And then he commands his apostles, his disciples, to follow his example, to do likewise. Right? Christ continued to exemplify his sacrificial love when he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, as we'll see next week in verse 8. So encountering the joy of the gospel drives us to genuine and lasting humility. We can sing with Isaac Watts, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. That's, that's the effect that the gospel should have. And so in a nation that is so divided by politics that it's on the brink of another civil war, the unity of the church ought to shine all the brighter. And so, unfortunately, we, we find ourselves bickering over tertiary matters that'll be forgotten in a few years. While we might anticipate tension to arise from, times and not to, from time to time, we can never settle for it. We can never just assume, well, this, is, this was inevitable. No, the fullness of joy is realized where edified saints are unified in humble service, where Christ has been at work and we reflect upon that work, and then because of that reflection, we then pursue unity in humility. And although the primary command from this passage was regarding his ex, Paul's exhortation for them to complete his joy, right? so therefore there's this recognition that joy is the byproduct of unity, he also gives here two prerequisites for unity. One is sympathy from above, verse 1, and then it's humility from within. If you're going to experience and enjoy unity, then you need to reflect upon the sympathy that you have received from above and the humility that you have from within. And so next week we'll see the, the primary example of humility in, in the cross of Christ, right? the gospel. Verses 5 through 11. And I, I would also just, as we're closing here, say we don't have our, our home fellowship groups uh, this week, but but take these take-home questions um, and, and use them around the dinner table or your breakfast together. Whenever you gather together as a family in your home, reflect upon these questions as a family. Think about them. And in my humble opinion, I think they're great. No, I'm just kidding. Um, let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would, that you would multiply the impact of this sermon in our lives that your spirit would do a work in our hearts to magnify our love for Christ, our recognition of the sympathy that we've received from him, the work of the spirit that we have enjoyed, the fellowship that we have with you, 
And because of that sympathy that we've received from you, that comfort and consolation that you've provided, the way in which we've been encouraged by the gospel, Lord, give us a desire to have the same mind, have the same love, to pursue the same goals, to have the same mission, the same doctrine, to fight for that unity because we know that it will have an impact upon the watching world, especially in times of so much tension and chaos. Lord, if that's going to happen in our midst, again, we recognize our need for your spirit to fill us with that desire, to give us that understanding. And Lord, I pray that you would begin that work even now as we come to the Lord's table, as we sing in, uh, this hymn of response, Lord, as we reflect in prayer, even as we enjoy uh, the lunch afterwards, seated around tables together, Lord, help us to edify and encourage one another, to sharpen each other, to continue to reflect upon these things, and to receive the blessings and benefits of your Spirit's work. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. All right, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response, again, is different than the one that you'll find in your bulletin. Um, this was, a, we were going to have a newer psalm today to sing, but, um, but Mark's going to have to teach that to us next week, hopefully, if he's, he's back with us. Uh, but you can turn in your hymnal to uh, hymn number 446. Hymn number 446, we'll sing together, Be Thou My Vision and we'll sing all five verses.